Good morning, church. Good morning. For those who don't know, my name is Shane. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the pleasure to preach the Word of God this morning. I wanted to tell you guys a story. This past summer, I got to experience something that I I think is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for me. My wife, Arden, and myself, my mother-in-law, and her boyfriend, we got to go to New York City. And while we were there, we went to the Met. That is the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And it was incredible. And I imagine this morning, if I was to ask the question, who is the greatest artist to ever live? And we all started shouting out answers. I don't think it would take long for someone in this room to say the name Vincent van Gogh. It just so happened that while we were there, they had this special exhibit. And it was his artwork, and, and, and more, more specifically, his, his paintings of cypress trees. And so we rounded the corner, and I expected to, to look all around the room and try to take in all this art, but I couldn't. Because my eyes caught one painting, and I couldn't look away. I was so taken in by this one painting, it took all of my focus, and that's because the Met had on loan from another museum, Vincent van Gogh's The Starry Night. It's a masterpiece. It was beautiful. Now, I can't help but get emotional whenever I think about Vincent van Gogh and his art. If you knew anything about him, you'd be aware of his lifelong battle with depression and that sadly, ultimately, he took his own life. I recently read a wonderful book called Rembrandt in the Wind, and in it, there was a story about Van Gogh. Van Gogh was not successful during his lifetime. He was prolific in the amount of paintings that he painted, but he only sold one painting during his lifetime. Van Gogh's acclaim came only a few years after he died. During the final year of Van Gogh's life, he had some of his work displayed at the 1889 Brussels Art Expo. And Vincent wasn't able to attend himself. But one night, all these artists that were there were having dinner together. And one of the artists, probably emboldened by the fact that Vincent Van Gogh was kind of a nobody at the time, he spoke up at the table and said, Van Gogh is a hack. And then he went as far to say that he didn't want his paintings to hang anywhere near that man's paintings. I don't know what he thought. Maybe he thought that it was a safe thing for him to pick on a guy who wasn't there. But some other artist leapt from his chair and said he was so offended that this man could speak so ill of such wonderful art that he pointed at the man and challenged him to a duel. Isn't that incredible? Another artist sitting at the table said, if this man dies in the duel, I will duel him next. (laughs) Why? Well, thankfully, cooler heads prevailed. They didn't have a duel. Instead, they had this artist that said disparaging remarks about Vincent van Gogh. They had him resign, collect all of his artwork, and leave. Why do I share this? Because Vincent van Gogh never knew these artists defended him. He never knew that these artists that he respected so much admired his work. See, it didn't matter that Vincent van Gogh was a brilliant painter. 
And the history would bear out that he is one of the greatest painters to have ever lived. See, so many others saw who Vincent van Gogh was, but he didn't see it himself. Now, I have no idea what difference it would make if Vincent van Gogh had heard that a community defended him. But I do think, before I even move forward, it's a reminder for us this morning to not let things go unsaid. That there are people in our lives who are treasures to us. They are precious to us. But we should tell them that. And church, I encourage you this week, consider the people in your life and the gift they are, and then tell them what they are to you. But that's not why I shared this story. See, when I read this story, I cried. Big shocker. And I wanted so badly to travel back in time And to go to Vincent van Gogh and put my arms around him and hug him. To pull away, put my hands on his shoulders, to look that man in the eyes and ask him, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? And when I read our passage this morning, Peter writing to a persecuted church, a church being opposed by others, He writes to them to encourage them and exhort them by telling them who they are in Christ and the glorious purpose to which they have. And when I read this passage, that story, that question came back to my mind, and I wonder this morning if God might grab our church, Metro Life Church, us gathered in this room, hug us, pull us away, shake us a little bit, look us in the eyes and ask us, do you know who you are? Because I am convinced if we have a shallow answer to that question, if we have not given this deep thought to what is the church, who we are, and why we're gathered here this morning, then we will never live up to the glorious calling to which we've been called. So church, do you know who you are? What are we? Why are we here? What are we doing together as a community, as a people? Well, church, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12 say this. Metro Life Church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of God 
and it is true. Church, do we know who we are this morning? Well, let's start with this. Peter, while speaking to the church of who she is, quotes three Old Testament passages. In these short verses I've just read, there are three direct quotations of Old Testament passages. So before I even dive into the specific words, I think there's something significant being communicated to us just in that. It's this. We are connected to a deep heritage. We are a part of an ancient plan. See, Peter uses three Old Testament passages that make direct statements and promises to the nation of Israel, and he applies them to the church. This means the church is the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises. God told Abraham that he would create a nation from him that would bless all the nations of the earth, and they would be a people set apart who worship God. And that people from all over the world would gather together to be with God's people and they would worship God with them. And Peter is telling the church, you are those people. You are those people. Friends, Metro Life Church is approaching its 40th year anniversary in 2025. That's amazing. Like that's praiseworthy. That's exciting. But this passage this morning is telling us that we have an even deeper heritage. See, praise God that that Danny Jones had a plan put in his heart to plant Metro Life Church, but you are a part of a much older plan. We are a part of something meaningful, which means that we're not a fad. This is why we don't care about building the name or brand of Metro Life Church because our identity isn't attached to this building. It's attached to the people of God who will bless the nations. Brothers and sisters, start with this. Your identity and purpose is rooted in a plan that was formed in the Godhead before there was time. We were a part of something so much bigger and greater than this. Now, it's not less than this. It matters that we gather together in this room to worship God, but it's much, much greater than this. Do you know who you are? Peter uses so many layering statements of identity in these verses, so let's take them briefly one at a time. You are a chosen race. God has, or God is making a people for himself. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been chosen. You are a part of a new people. And God's chosen race will not look all the same physically. His people will be comprised of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. So I think it's important to pause and consider for a moment. See, Peter didn't write this letter just to one local church. Peter didn't write this to Metro Life Church or Church Together, or Community Church, or Divine Truth, or Ascension Lutheran, or Storehouse Church. All wonderful local churches in Castleberry. Now he wrote this letter to the elect exiles. The Christians who were spread out throughout all the regions, scattered. 
This letter was written to the capital C church. So pause and consider right now, this morning. Probably around 5 a.m. our time, when you were probably asleep like me, our sister, Rachel, who is in Nigeria, she's doing Bible translation. And likely around that time, she was gathered together in a church with local Nigerians worshiping the name of Jesus. Last night, 10 p.m., it was Sunday morning in Beijing, China. And our brothers and sisters who want to be a part of a body of believers that's not overseen by the government were meeting in secret over a Bible, worshiping the King of Kings. The same Bible we have in this room here today. Whether it's in Barranquilla, Colombia, Intangar, India, in Tehran, Moscow, or Rome. There are people who look different than us, who dress different than us, speak different than us, but we have this in common. We are a chosen race. We are God's people, and we are a family with them. See, the bride of Christ, the church, is a multi-ethnic bride, and she is beautiful. Who are you, church? You are part of a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. Chris spoke about this briefly last week. We are part of the king's royal priesthood. It's been said that great change in society, religious change in society, have been accomplished when the church embraced her role as the priest. I want you to think this morning of what a priest looks like. Just go ahead, try to picture it in your mind. If you're thinking Old Testament, you probably have robes or, or things like that. If you're thinking more modern times, you might be thinking of a Catholic priest, black and white. Do you want to know what a priest looks like? Look in the row around you. The people in this room, this room is filled with priests. Brother, sister, did you realize this morning when you got up and chose what to wear, you were a priest getting ready to walk out and do your role? Did you realize that you were a priest this morning? Is that challenging? I hope it is. I hope it calls us up to something. See, these things, these truths about our identity, I hope and I pray that they don't hang over us and weigh us down, but they are foundational things that lift us up and call us upwards. We are priests this morning. So what do priests do? Let me point out two things. One, they intercede. Priests pray for people. They pray to God. When they see things that are broken in our world, things that come from sin, whether it's willful disobedience or the sin of others, they pray. Whether it's, it's disease or sickness, they pray. War and violence, they pray. Brothers and sisters, do you, is anything weigh on your heart heavy? I know it weighs on mine. When things weigh on our hearts heavily, let that weight pull us down to our knees and let's pray. That is a role of God's priest. So pray for your city. Pray for the city you live in. Pray for the city our church is in. 
I can't help but wonder what would be different in Castleberry, Florida, if God's priests, all of his priests, not just here at Metro, but the priesthood of Christ were to embrace their role to intercede for their city. What would be different? Pray for the lost. Cry out for the broken. Lift up before God the sick. Intercede for our nation. Let's be a people who pray. You know, whenever the nation of Israel and the Old Testament wandered from God into injustice and corruption, the priesthood was often corrupted alongside it. They would forsake their role. So, if we are finding ourselves in a culture, in a world around us that is disobedient from God, which we do, then let's start here first and ask, are we praying as priests? Are we being faithful priests? Two, the priesthood offers up pleasing sacrifices to God. Chris touched on this last week, so I'll just mention this. The sacrifice for sin has been made once and for all in Christ Jesus. It's done. There is no need for us to offer up sacrifices of atonement. So what sacrifices do we offer up? We offer up sacrifices of praise and worship. Romans tells us to offer up our lives as living sacrifices. So when we wake up in the morning and we realize, we remind ourselves, I am a part of the royal priesthood, we should ask ourselves, what sacrifice can I bring to give God glory today? To look at my time, my talent, my money, my treasure, my sweat. And like the woman anointing Jesus' feet by pouring out perfume, we should pour it out to the name of God. Let us be a priest who offer up sacrifices. Is that too vague? You want particulars? I, I like particulars. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 through 16 says this. Through him, Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Do you know know a place to start? Where do I offer up sacrifices, Lord, today? The fruit of our lips. Let us be a people who acknowledge God. Thank God. Praise God. Speak about God. Don't hide him. And let us be a people who think, how do I do good to others today? How can I love others? And how can I share what I've been given? These are sacrifices that are pleasing to God. So church, who are we? We're a royal priesthood. And we're a holy nation. I love this one, a holy nation. Holy means to be set apart. We are different than other people. Tim Keller used to say that we need to be both weird and similar in the right ways. I love that. There are things that people enjoy and do in life that are good. And we can partake in those things with a clean conscience. It's called common grace and common good. And there are things that, are God's, that God's word makes clear are evil. And we are to reject those things. And because of this tension, we will both have common ground with people who don't follow Jesus and we will also look weird to people who don't follow Jesus. Both will be true. 
Now, it's probably a good moment to just acknowledge that some of us are just weird. You know, if you find that, that you have no common ground with someone who doesn't follow Jesus, you can't find any place where you have common ground, can I just caution, you might be making rules where God has not. Now, those who are younger, like me, who grew up in the 90s Christian household, you might just think, man, that's the big problem of the church. We're just too weird. We're always weird. You know, my concern as a pastor, one that is growing, especially the more and more I interact with the culture around us and, and think about what's coming, it's that some of us just look the same. Brothers and sisters, we need to look weird. It needs to be in the right ways. See, if we have everything in common, we are so concerned about our lost friends never thinking something about our faith and who we are as a person is weird, we're missing something. Our otherness makes it clear that we have a different set of values, hopes, and joys. Or to say it differently, it makes it clear that we don't belong here. This is not our home. This world in its fallen state is not our home. I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. In D.C., there are a lot of foreign embassies. These are buildings set aside to house foreign governments. Now, technically, although they're on U.S. soil, these embassies are considered foreign soil. It's as if this country has a little piece of America. Now, embassies are there to represent a foreign nation. If you were invited into a foreign uh, embassy, when you walk through those front doors, you are stepping out of your country and into another nation. Now, what is the church? The church is the people. It's not this building. Chris said last week, we are being made as living stones into a temple for Christ to dwell with us, or, or God to dwell with us. Christ is the cornerstone of the church. So it's the people that's the church. But on Sunday mornings, when the people gather, they gather inside a specific place. We gather somewhere. And so in this way, this building, this church right now is like an embassy. It's like a small outpost of God's kingdom in the midst of a foreign land. And when people walk through those front doors, believers and unbelievers— it's like they're stepping into a whole different country. They find a place filled with people who have different values and hopes, different joys and expectations. They find people who, who sing songs to a God that they cannot physically see right now. They find people who love a book that is thousands of years old and believe it holds the very words of God. They find a people who give generously, people who laugh often, I hope, people who look differently because of the things that they won't do and the things that they do. They find a holy nation. And when we leave these walls, we don't stop being a holy nation. When a foreign official leaves an embassy, they become ambassadors for their nations. In the same way, wherever you are during this week, you are an ambassador for the kingdom of God. 
You are on foreign soil. This is not your home. You don't belong here, but you have a kingdom to represent. And you have a message to spread. See, God's plan to bless the nations came in the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel that we rejoice in. See, Paul calls us ambassadors of reconciliation. He says that we have a ministry of reconciliation, that we are to go and tell people out there who are still fighting against God that God has made a way for there to be peace. And his plan to spread that message, to bless the nations, is us. We are the plan. And so as we leave these walls, we are ambassadors of a kingdom. We say there is another country that we are a part of, and there is a particular message that we need to tell people. The king is coming, and he's made a way for peace. Oh, church, you are a holy nation. And we're a people for his own possession. What does that mean? It's incredible to hear all these things about our identity, things that are true about us. We have meaning. But maybe the, the true joy of our identities, like the real heart of it, is this simple one right here. See, we're not just given value. We are valued. We are treasured. We are enjoyed. We are God's possession. I'm a father. I have two daughters. You could guess I'm a father because you see that I have two daughters. It's part of my identity. And I know that. I know I am a dad. But you know what communicates something different to me? When my daughters put their arms around me and they say, Dad, I am so glad you're my dad. I'm their father. See, it's amazing to be told that you have meaning, your life has meaning, but it's another thing to be wrapped in the arms of one who treasures you. See, God didn't just make us a people to accomplish something. We're not just a tool to our king, our God. We are his people. Church, do you know who you are? You belong to the God of the universe, and your life has deep purpose. In just the next verse, we're reminded that this all wasn't always our identity. Once, we were not a people. Once, we had not received mercy. The contrast of this is monumental, and I think it serves two purposes. First, it serves this. The distance between who we were without Christ and the deep, wonderful identity that we have this morning should cause us to worship and praise God. The gulf between those two realities should stir up worship in us. I think of it this way. If, if you were to approach a very wealthy man, a millionaire, and you were to give him a million dollars, probably be pretty grateful. But he, he'd add it to his great wealth. But I want you to think this morning about a single mother working two jobs. And she's skipping meals so that she can make sure her kids have enough to eat. 
and it's the end of the month and rent's coming up, but the car just broke down and she needed to repair it so she could actually keep her two jobs. And she's being told that if she doesn't pay, her and her children are going to be kicked out. And you gave her $1,000? That means something different, doesn't it? See, out of her lack and her need to be given a treasure, it changes everything. The difference between us and what we've been given is so much greater. We were bankrupt. We had nothing. We had not received mercy. We were not a people. We were opposed to God and we had no hope apart from him. And through Jesus, he gave us the wealth of heaven. He made us a people. He gave us mercy. He gave us life. What's the second reason for reminding us of where we came from? It reminds us that we're not better than anyone else, doesn't it? See, we're not God's people this morning because God saw something special in us. God didn't look at us and say, oh man, if I could just get them on my team. You know, one of my favorite things a pastor once said is he said that God picks the losing team and wins anyways. <laughs> I always feel a sting into my pride when I say it. See, we're not better than others who are still enemies of God. We weren't more deserving. We're treated by God in a way that we do not deserve. It's grace. So that should bring about praise and worship, and it should cause us to share this good news with anyone who would listen. Because God said, go tell them. They can come too. Now, I've been focusing on our identity in this passage, what God has made us, who he declares us to be. And our identity hints at our purpose, but there are direct commands in the passage coming out of our identity. This is our purpose as a people on earth. The first part of it is in the first verse. It starts with the words, so that. That means it's telling us the purpose of these wonderful truths is so that so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If this morning God was to grab hold of us and shake us a little bit, look us in the eyes and ask us the question, church, do you know who you are? I think the next question would be, do you know the glorious purpose to which I called you? Proclaim. Proclaim. Church, Proclaim the excellencies of him. This morning, we get to rejoice, to talk, to use our words, to put into words how excellent our God is. He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we are to tell the nations who God is. But if we don't treasure God deeply, we won't have much to say about him to others, will we? Our lives connected to an ancient plan to bless the nations. We are uh, to communicate to a world that's still in darkness that God is in the light. The purpose of the church is to boast in God, to treasure God, to publicly rejoice in God. 
And we can be tempted in our increasingly secularizing culture to believe that faith is a private matter. That is not the biblical command. Our faith is inherently a very public matter. First, in our speech, we are to tell others the joy that we have, the freedom we experience, the comfort we have in hardship, the security that we enjoy, all because of God. And I don't want to overcomplicate this. The place where we most clearly see the excellencies of our God, it's in the very verse, when he calls us out of darkness into his light. The place we see most clearly the excellencies of God is in the gospel. That God came for us and took our place on the cross. He took our sin, our shame, our consequences, and he bore it on our behalf. He died and he rose from the grave conquering sin and death. And he poured out his Holy Spirit on us and made us his church. We are a new people. And there are so many ways we can faithfully articulate the gospel, but we must articulate the gospel. Church, study the gospel. Treasure the gospel. Preach it to your own unbelieving heart and then tell other people this truth. That God has made a way for us to be with him. It's also in our conduct. Look at verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify, glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you see our identity again? Exiles and sojourners. This is not our home. We have another kingdom. And we're told to abstain from the passions of the flesh and to keep our conduct honorable. Now you might have noticed earlier when I spoke about us being a holy nation that I didn't spend a lot of time parsing out what holiness should look like. That's because one can argue that 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter, the rest of it, is Peter explaining to his readers what this kind of conduct looks like. So I'm going to cheat and let the coming sermons tell us what it looks like to look weird in the right ways. But it's important to say this very clearly. We are to reject the passions of our flesh. The way we live matters deeply. The choices you make and what you do or what you don't do the thoughts you entertain, and the thoughts that you put to death, what you take pleasure in and what you hate, this will either be a life that is honorable or one that is dishonorable. Passions of the flesh, they wage war on our souls. This, this matters for our witness. That's what this passage is saying, that our conduct should be honorable amongst those who do not believe in Jesus. That matters for our witness. But I think there's something important just in that phrasing. It wages war against our souls. See, living rightly, saying no to our flesh, rejecting what is sinful, and putting on what is righteous also has to do with our own good. 
There is something fighting against our new identity in God. Something old and dying. Something that Christ has finished. And we have to reject it and live in the reality of what God has declared us. We cannot go back to it. We must resist the passions of our flesh. And we get at this point another so that statement. This time it's not so that we may do something. Instead, it's so those who currently reject God might do something. See, when they persecute us, when they speak evil against us, when they say you are weird and it's stupid and we reject you, when, when they pull away from us, that the way we live, it might silence them. And then not just silence them, but give them a reason to shout. Because it says that they won't just be silenced, they will glorify God. Meaning that the way we live, the way we proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness, the conduct of which we live, the good deeds that are a part of a life living for Jesus, it might cause people right now who are not God's people, people who have not received mercy, to receive mercy and become God's people. And then they might glorify God. That is the calling to the church. See, we are these kind of people. We are chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? You see it? So that we might glorify God and the lost might glorify God. That is the purpose of our new identity. This is all because God is worthy. He is worthy. So that he might be exalted high. That we might point to him and say, he is the worthy one. God is worthy of this worship. You know, I have, I have a pastoral concern that a lot of people's push for evangelism has to do these days informed only by a compassion for the loss. And I understand that. A compassion for the loss. That, that we look at those who are outside of Jesus right now and it breaks our hearts. And that's good. And it should. And it should lead us to go towards them. But if that's the only thing that moves you towards the lost is your your, your compassion for them, that they are blind, they don't see, and that you used to not see. And it's untethered. It becomes unbalanced and unhinged. And what happens is we start looking at those who are in sin and we start thinking they're victims of their sin. We remove the responsibility that we too once were rebelling against God. And people now are rebelling against God. There is a responsibility for them to turn away. And what we end up doing when we do that is we preach a gospel that saves people from God and not a gospel that saves people to God. The balance that we need is a high view of the worth of God. That when we see the loss, we have broken hearts and compassion, knowing that we too once were blind like that. We go to them, and we also look at their lives and know God is worthy of your worship. And the Bible calls this zeal. It's a jealousy for, on God's behalf. And church, we need to have 
both. We need to have compassion for the lost that is informed by a deep zeal for the glory of God. And we need to go and proclaim this message. We must move and proclaim the message because God is worthy of worship. This is why as a church we seek to do good to those in our community. It's out of the abundance, out of that big rift between how bankrupt we used to be and how much wealth we have in Christ now that we want to go and pour out in our community. And those good deeds, those works of, of, of righteousness, they, uh, they, they season our words when we proclaim the gospel. They make them more believable to people who oppose us. And so we, we do things like you bought uniforms for children at a local elementary school. Many of you have given blood at the big red bus when it's parked out front. I'm terrified of it. I think you guys are very brave. We serve families through events like Neighbor to Neighbor. We go to homes that are in disarray and we, we, we change the yard and, and clean it up for them. We do this because we're living out our identity to a community around us. And we are, we are proclaiming the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his light. Church, do you know who you are? When you woke up this morning, did you realize that you had such a glorious purpose and calling? We are God's plan to bless the nations. That every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship him. Before we close, I want to let you know that you will encounter opposition when you live in the identity God has given us as a church. You know, five years ago, we had our last, what we call, Funtoberfest at Secret Lake Park. Now, you've heard the announcements, you see the table, you know it's back. But five years ago, we had our last event. It was local churches that put on a family-friendly event in place of the city's Halloween event. A few months back, Andy Searles, another local pastor, and I wondered if God was calling us back to this event. And so we approached people in charge of events for the city, and we brought it up. And when we said, hey, we just want to talk about Funtoberfest, they said, oh, thank you. Yes, take it back. And they said the reason was this event has gotten too dark for us. You hear that? A city official saying that this event is too dark and acknowledging that the church has something different to offer. So we've been working with seven other local churches to put on a Funtoberfest event this year. And it'll take place of the Spooktoberfest event that's been happening for the last five years. And yes, there will be kids dressed up in costumes and there will be trunk or treating. We'll also have a prayer tent. Local ministries will have tables. And all the volunteers will be ambassadors of the kingdom of God. And after the event, every family is going to be invited to these events that churches are having, like a parenting class, things like that hoping that it's a bridgeway for them to come into the church. And every email we get from the raffle, they're going to be emailed an invitation to our church services. But as we made this plan in faith, several other local events have sprung up in our city. 
ones that celebrate the occult, nights openly about spiritualism and mysticism, tarot cards and fortune tellers. I was talking to one of the other pastors and he said, how interesting it is that the moment the church takes something dark from the city, the enemy fights back so hard. Now I know for some of us, this is a conscious issue. To be involved in an event like this that looks like Halloween in any way, it might weigh on your conscience and please feel released. Do not want anyone hurting their conscience. Be clear, this is not a Halloween event, but yeah, it has costumes and candy. We tried very hard as pastors to reject anything that was evil in our planning to pursue a redemptive purpose in creating a family-friendly alternative. So closing out the sermon, I want to do two things. One, I want to make an unashamed appeal. If it doesn't weigh on your conscience, if you feel freedom, would you consider volunteering? Because there are people in our community that need to encounter ambassadors of God's kingdom. And I think there's a way here that we can do that. I got Katie Chung and, and Justin Jones are going to be in the lobby with laptops and they can register you if you want to volunteer. You can bring candy in the coming weeks. We need candy. The kids are going to get you trunks. If there's not candy, they're going to flip the cars. So one, I, I want to make that very, very unashamed appeal. Big surprise, I'm in charge of getting volunteers for this event. <laughs> but here's the second thing. Whether your conscience can't bear it or it can, either way, this is for everyone in this room. We are royal priests. Every one of you. So what I want to ask this morning is, will you pray with me for our city? Now I'm going to pray. I got the microphone. Makes me loud. And I'm going to pray up here. And I'm going to ask you to do this. If you're a follower of Christ and, and you, you realize, I, I am a priest for the Lord. I am a part of the royal priesthood. This morning, I ask that you would pray with me. Not listen to my prayer, but pray with me find it helpful sometimes to just raise my hands a little bit. It doesn't, doesn't magically do anything, but it tells me I'm actively a part of this right now. Pray in your seats. You know, you can get a little loud. Don't worry, I'll be way louder. No one else is going to bother by it. They can hear my voice. You agree with what I'm saying. Say yes. Yes, God. Not because I want you to affirm me, but because together right now, I want this room filled with priests interceding for Castleberry, Florida. Crying out for this event. Crying out for families that are going to go there. And praying in faith that God is going to call people out of darkness into his marvelous light. Church, I'm in faith that there will be testimonies of people who encountered the church for the first time at an event like Funtoberfest, being baptized here and telling us how they love Jesus. But let's pray. So church, pray with me right now. Oh Lord, we lift up this city before you. 
Lord, there are people all around us who are in darkness. And we're not out of darkness because we're better than them. We're out of darkness because you called us and we came running. We ask right now, in the name of Jesus, would you call people out of darkness into your light? Lord, we pray for people in this city. We pray for people we know who are lost right now. Names that are burdened on our heart. It's bringing us to our knees. Would you hear those names right now, God? Lord, we proclaim your excellencies. You are worthy. You are worthy of our lives. You are worthy of worship. You are worthy of the praise of people around us in our workplace, in our home. Lord, we pray against the enemy who wants people to stay in darkness, that wants them blinded. We ask right now, Lord, would you break the enemy and would you set captives free? Lord, you rescued us. We're not apathetic people this morning. We were dead and now we are alive. And so Lord, we praise you. Lord, I lift up this event. Lord, would you push back against the enemy? There's a, there's a event in the park a week before ours that celebrates darkness, God. Would you rain it out? And Lord, would you call people to this event, not to hear us, not to get candy, but to hear the name of Jesus. Lord, would you prepare their hearts? Would you soften them? Would you give sight to the blind? Lord, we are your priests and we lift them up before you. And we rejoice this morning. Oh, we were not a people, but now we are your people. We had not received mercy, yet now we received mercy. Lord, would we embrace? We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of your possession, so that we may glorify you. Oh God, be glorified right now. Be glorified in our worship and song. Be glorified in our worship as we leave. Be glorified as we go as ambassadors into the world. Be glorified, Lord, as we proclaim the gospel to our neighbors. Be glorified, Lord, as we live differently in our workplaces. Be glorified this week. In the name of Jesus, be lifted above every other name. Oh Lord, get the glory. And we are your people. And this is why we're here. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.